What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we wrap up our series uh, all about love. We spent a couple of months now looking at what love really means. The key idea is that love is promoting the spiritual growth of ourselves and those around us. We've gone through a number of specific actions and ways that we show love. And last week we looked at one of the distinctions of the Methodist church. This is the idea that we can have perfect love. It doesn't mean we are perfect, but it means we strive to always share a kind of love that puts God and others first. We enter into their mindset, their pain, their struggle to love the way that God loves them. It's a high calling, and I believe God invites not just one or two of us on that journey, but all of us. All of us can love others with God's love all the time. Now, I know that's not easy to do, nor is it easy to figure exactly what that means. Some of us may be committed to loving others, even when they are evil or cruel to us. But what does that look like? What does that mean to love them? I think of my children. If I set a boundary for my kids and they trample across it, that can lead to huge problems. You don't let a child play in the street where it's dangerous. Same is true with adults. If they are causing havoc, if they are violating all kinds of social rules, they have to change their behavior, even if we have to force them to, right? Or should we? (laughs) So our last week, we look at love uh, for the toughest people to love. How do you handle those situations where someone won't change? Maybe they are sick or have a disorder. They're stuck heading in the wrong direction, and you have to deal with them. Eric is going to read our scripture for today from the Gospel of Matthew. This passage is going to guide our reflections on the toughest people to love. This is Jesus again, as last week, preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He ends his most famous teaching with judging others and taking action, not just hearing it and doing nothing. We're going to focus on that part about judging others as we look at loving these challenging people. This is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the message you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see... The speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not not notice the speck in the log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And everything, do to others as you would have them to do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. 
and from James 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may we be an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Many of us want to love others, Lord, but it can be so difficult. Help us to be faithful to your call, even when things are challenging. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was a boy in elementary school, I remember a page out of my science book. It was a picture of enormous stingray. Actually, the giant ones are called manta rays, but uh, here's a photo to give you a sense of how enormous they are. It's absolutely breathtaking. But what caught my attention in the photo was not how big and beautiful they were. It was actually that there were these little fish attached to this underwater behemoth. It struck me as very strange. Why would that huge creature just let those fish hang around it? Were they somehow friends, maybe frenemies? Uh, then when I read the section on symbiotic relationships, my little brain took in information that forever changed my view of the world. Those little fish are remoras. They have these little suckers on them that allow them to attach themselves to larger sea creatures. They do this so they can hitch a ride around the ocean and eat the parasites that live on the stingrays or manta rays. The stingrays get cleaned of parasites and the remoras get to travel and eat. Sounds like a pretty good life in retirement, doesn't it? These two creatures have what's called a relationship of mutuality. They work together and both benefit. It's the way things are supposed to go in relationships, right? But there are other kinds of symbiotic relationships under the ocean. Another is called commensalism, which is where one species benefits and the other doesn't really care about the first one being there. They don't, it, they don't care. It doesn't make a difference to them. A third form I already mentioned, that's parasites. That's when one species specifically harms the other to get what it wants. I imagine for many of us, we could probably name people in our lives that have taken on one of those roles. Some people live in mutuality with us. We benefit each other. We work for the good of the family or the workplace. Other people might be more like the second category. There's no harm done, but maybe one person benefits a lot more than the other. Casual acquaintances might fit here. But it's the third category, I think, that really gets most of us. Some people are like parasites to us. Not a pleasant idea, but some people just take and take and take. How can you love someone that never gives back? How can the church love people that don't operate out of mutuality? Maybe these people don't even believe in that or understand that that's the way it ought to be among people. Here are just a few examples of the kinds of people that are tough to love. This comes from Chuck DeGroat. People with disorders such as narcissism, obsessive compulsive disorder, borderline and histrionic personality disorder. There are also people that have addictions, sex and drugs, anorexia and self-mutilization. Uh, now these can be serious situations worthy of our attention and hard work to improve on. But I'd like to focus on a third category that he talks about of tough people to love. The third category is the fool. 
there are lots of different kinds of fools out there, but an example that he gives is one of a grandmother, Judy, who refuses to follow the instructions of her daughter regarding Judy's grandchild. Judy seems nice enough to most folks, but she blatantly disregards boundaries set by others, and when her granddaughter spent the night at grandma's house, she cooked fish sticks for her. That seems fine, except that the parents told her specifically that their daughter was diagnosed with celiac disease. The parents ended up spending the night in the hospital with their daughter, and when they confronted the grandmother, Judy said, when you were young, you ate everything. I don't believe all this nonsense about allergies. That, my friends, is a fool who refuses to accept the truth of the consequences of this allergic reaction. How do you love people that are so dismissive of reality, harming people with their ignorance? It would be easy to berate these fools and put all the blame on them for all of our problems, but I think the words of Jesus force us to slow down and reconsider. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. Now, we might think of that as something like, if I judge someone else, they are going to judge me, so don't judge others. That very well may be true, but that's not what Jesus is saying. The image here is of a scale. The more you judge someone, the more you are putting weight on the scale. But it's not judgment back from the people that you get. The judgment you receive for judging others comes from God. This idea is all over the scriptures. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, your good works don't bring glory to you, they bring glory to God. Proverbs 19, 17 says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full. Again, your good actions aren't so much about you and that person, it's between you and God. There's a couple other ways we see judgment play out. One uh, in the Old Testament says that if you give false testimony, if you lie in court about something you saw and it was discovered, it's not the person you accuse that receives the punishment. You do. You are guilty of the crime simply for lying about it. The scriptures regularly condemn unjust judges, especially if they take a bribe. So the scriptures are, are pretty clear about judging. It's not to be trifled with. Judging is a sacred trust and must be done fairly. And your judgment isn't really about the person. It's actually about God. Jesus goes on to describe how ridiculous it is to judge someone else and remove the tiny speck in their eye when we ourselves have logs in our own eyes. Jesus is saying, look, you're a fool too. You just can't see it. We are blind to our own shortcomings. I can't think of a better example than in this pandemic. We are all trying to figure out masks and vaccines and social distancing. My wife, Emily, has shared with me how there is this growing anxiety for her that we as a family are being inconsistent with our response to covid uh, maybe you felt some of that anxiety yourself. We say yes to some things and no to others. And at a certain point, the rules we've made for ourselves don't really make sense. 
the environment changes, the people change, new science comes out, and then on top of all that, the disease itself changes on us. Our family can't keep up with the reality as it actually exists. Does that mean we stop trying to do the best we can? No, of course not. Does it mean we are rude and obnoxious to others who don't do it the way we do it? Definitely not. Don't judge so that you may not be judged. I don't want God condemning me because I thought I had it all figured out and it turns out I know just as little as the next guy. Do we listen to the scientists? Sure, but not to people who don't know what they're talking about, right? As Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't give what is holy to dogs. I know that puts our animal lovers on edge, but he's talking about the stray dogs that will attack you unprovoked. Then he says, don't put pearls before swine. And maybe we think it means something about not getting our nice things dirty, but there's a surprising amount of debate on what this verse actually means. It could be tied with the verses just before it, that we need to be humble enough to receive correction and shouldn't judge those who refuse to listen to us. Or it could be tied to the next section about asking, searching, and knocking. Then it would mean we should give only to those who want what we are offering, just like God does. So there's some debate. It's not quite clear, but both make some sense. Either way, though, the final verse from today is very clear. Whatever we do, whether we are reserving judgment, humbly receiving correction from others, or giving what others are willing to receive, we follow what we call the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is a law of mutuality, of loving others the way you want to be loved, of treating others the way you would want to be treated. What I understand the scriptures to be telling us is just how important it is to avoid jumping to conclusions about others. Simply categorizing others as parasites or as fools means we are immediately on dangerous ground. We are very likely to misjudge someone else. Either their intentions or their reasoning or even what their goals actually are. When we misjudge them, we are breaking this law of mutuality. We are not doing what we want others to do for us. I don't want to be wrongly judged. I don't want you to think I'm a bad guy when I'm trying to do the best that I can. And I bet that's true for you too. There's a, a ton of research about this little quirk about how we see ourselves. If you ask someone how good they are at something, they're pretty consistently going to think of themselves as better than they actually are. Uh, my favorite is about driving cars. 73% of people think they are better than average at driving. Uh, that means a whole lot of people are not as good as they think they are, which means uh, I myself am a great driver, so I know this doesn't apply to me. The same is true in our day-to-day -day interactions. When we think we are better than others, guess what happens? We think other people are worse than us. Our big heads lead us to trusting them less, too. It's called the fundamental attribution error. We attribute someone's actions not to a response in the circumstance, but to a character flaw 
we think something must be wrong with them to be doing that. That's all the opposite of what the golden rule teaches us. Love them the way you want to be loved. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't accuse them. Accept them. Mutualism means we work for the good of each other. We want what's best. So we will pause and talk and work it out. In psychology, the point is often made that you can't control other people. Uh, What you can control is yourself. As Christians, we recognize that in our sin and in our frailty as humans, we often can't even control ourselves. That's why the Apostle Paul says, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So how do we escape this loop of overestimating ourselves and thinking worse of others? We can see the goal is mutualism, doing for others what we would want, but how do we get there? I know there are many ways we could move towards this goal, but one key, I think, has to be a change in our values. This whole series we've been talking about loving actions toward others, and we've even talked about James 1.27 before, that real religion is caring for orphans and widows in distress. I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but it was only this week that the second part of that same verse really caught my attention. After caring for widows and orphans, it goes on, religion is also to keep oneself unstained by the world. Unstained. The letter of James is all about a group of people who think they should make the world Christian by force, by violence. If they can just defeat the enemy with an army. Then they can do things the right way. But James is correcting them. He's saying, holding on to the world, valuing the things the world values, pulls us in the wrong direction. Violence is demonic. So he lists for them what God's values are. God's values are for us to be peaceable, to be gentle, to be open to reason, to be full of Imagine a world where when someone does something we don't like, instead of saying, I'm going to make that person change, instead we were unwavering in our godly values, impartial in our judgment, and without prejudice for others. That's a world that I want to be a part of. That's a world full of love, even when we disagree. Let me end with this. Henry Nouwen is one of my favorite Christian leaders for years. He taught pastoral psychology at Notre Dame, then at Yale, and finally Harvard. It was a coveted position, and he did it exceedingly well. But all was not right. There was a calling on his life that went unfulfilled. When he officiated a wedding in Toronto, there was a a car accident that left a man in critical condition. Henry found himself offering pastoral care for the family and for the community the man worked at called Daybreak. He describes this facility as a place for the mentally handicapped. And after a few days of brokering peace between the parties, this facility, Daybreak, they asked him to become their pastor at Daybreak. He said yes to it, abandoning his post at Harvard. Daybreak was like nowhere else on earth. He had written these beloved books, but there, no one knew who he was because none of them could read. 
One day he offered meat to an assistant, and one of the handicapped men said, don't give him meat. He doesn't eat meat. He's a Presbyterian. He said that that place, he was nothing other than who he was in that very moment. It was like starting his life all over again. He learned that he could offer the world nothing but his own vulnerable That is just how Jesus offered himself, revealing God's love. Underneath all of the brokenness of that community and others around the world, from the super rich to the poorest of the poor, he realized that all of us have the same cry going up. Is there anybody who loves me? Is there anybody who really cares? Is there anybody who will tell me I belong? our answer to the broken and to the outwardly capable and to the fool be the same. Yes, you belong. Yes, you are loved. With the love of God, we will love you. With the love of God, we will care for you. Your struggles aren't you. Your disagreement isn't everything. What matters is is that you are the beloved of God, and so we will love you with the same fierce love of God that calls all of us to work toward mutuality in all things. Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.